When I first moved here to Chandler, I used the language of family a lot to talk about our church. In fact, the, tra- the fact the tracks that we handed out said, join the family of faith, and that was kind of the byline that showed up on the website, the new website that I built. And I used that language hoping to communicate that a church is like a family. It's this community of people who encourage one another, love one another, support one another. But what I found out pretty quick was that a lot of people didn't equate the word family with that. And a lot of people weren't very attracted to this idea of joining a family because their family had been a source of a lot of trauma and heartbreak. People weren't attracted to be a part of a church family because they'd never been a part of a family that was attractive. In his book, um, Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance talks about towards the end of his book when He's at college and he's got a girlfriend and she is studying and she's going over this list of things that children, when they experience, they are classified as having a traumatic childhood. And there's this long list of of all these things and if they've they've experienced a certain number of the long list, and J.D. Vance talks about how he realizes looking at this list that he experienced all of these. And it may be that for you, family is not... Uh, a, a source of good memories. It may be that family was a source of heartbreak and trauma. And the longer I uh, serve in ministry, the more I come to find out that a lot of people have baggage with the word family. But the longer I serve in ministry, I've also found that people are more, intra- more attracted to a community of love, support, safety, and development than I could have ever imagined. It's not that people want what a family, don't want what a family is supposed to be. It's that they don't want what most families end up being. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus refers to his band of disciples. Those who hear his words, hear his message, and live it out. He refers to them as his family. And what I hope that you'll see through this chapter and throughout the rest of Luke's writings this year is that this group of people that have gathered around Jesus, this group of people that Luke would come to join, this group of people that would start the church that transformed the world, that they had this beautiful community of love, support, safety, and development. And in Luke chapter 8, we're seeing just kind of the bedrock foundation being laid for this beautiful community. Now, the beginning of chapter 8 introduces us to some more of these disciples, and specifically three women disciples. Mary, who is from Magdalene or Magdala. She's also often referred to as Mary Magdalene, not because Magdalene is her last name, but because that's the area that she's from. Joanna, who is the wife of Herod's steward. And Susanna, who we're given almost no details on. And it's remarkable that we're introduced to these three women in verses 1 to 3 as part of Jesus' disciples because it would have been pretty outside of the norm for women to be so closely identified with a traveling teacher, especially the women that are listed here. Because Mary isn't just from Magdala. She is formerly a prostitute and had demons thrown out of her. She is uh, one of Jesus's followers that people start referring to him as a friend of sinners because of her. Herod's steward's 
wife is one of Jesus' followers. Here is not just a Roman or a Greek, but someone who is an outsider and is a part of the enemy in most Jews' eyes. And so let's look at verses 1 to 3 and see the introduction of these disciples. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings, the good news of the kingdom, the gospel message of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Um, it's interesting that we're given the names of these three women, but they're not uh, introduced in relationship to any man. Now, Joanna is, and that's probably because Luke wants Theophilus to make the connection and other Greek writers, readers to make the connection to Herod, who they would have been familiar with. Luke is not telling them stories about people who are made up, but these are people that they are familiar with, that they're connected to, that they have some context with. But Mary Magdalene isn't referred to in reference to a husband or a deceased husband or a firstborn son. Susanna isn't. And normally, a woman is introduced in that way, in that culture and time. She had standing through whatever man might represent her. But Jesus welcomed these women into his, his group of disciples. They were a part of his following. And Jesus is starting to gather around him this group of outsiders and misfits. And in chapter 7 and verse 34, Jesus references the fact that people have called him a friend of sinners and a friend of publicans. He's a friend of the outsider. He's a friend of these people that most would not want to associate with. And so even those that are a part of Jesus' discipleship band who don't fit into those categories, they didn't have demons cast out of them. They weren't tax collectors. They're being associated with these people by being a part of Jesus' group. And so understanding that, it makes it even more powerful. Here in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus refers to this group of disciples as his family. And he's not just saying this to be nice. He's not just giving flattery. He says this in response to his actual blood relatives, his family, his mother and his brothers who have come to see them, see him. And he says, this is my family, those who hear my words and do them. And so we're introduced to this family that's expanding, this family that Jesus refers to as those who follow him and obey his commands. But more importantly, we're shown the kind of role that these disciples fulfill here in chapter 8. Chapter 8 begins this shift where we see more and more of the activity, not just of Jesus, but also of his disciples. The 12 who would become apostles, the three women who are listed here, and, as verse 3 points out, many others who are not named. We see that being a part of this family isn't just being welcomed, but it's functioning together and serving together. It's giving generously to one another, not out of obligation, but out of love. It's sharpening one another and helping one another grow, not to critique one another or put one another down, but rather to develop one another, to lift one another up. And just in chapter 8, just in this first glimpse of this beautiful community, this beautiful group that Jesus is building, 
we have in verse 3, they're serving through supporting one another financially. Um, there are 100 another, one another passages in the New Testament. And so the New Testament is going to talk at length about the type of community that the church should be. It's going to talk about how we should support one another, how we should love one another, how we should pray for one another, how we should exhort or encourage one another, how we should hold one another accountable. And here in chapter 8, we're seeing the brief, the bedrock, the beginning foundations of this one another group. And one of the first references is the fact that they are giving of their means. Now, Joanna, who is the wife of Herod Stewart, she probably would have had substantially more means than, say, Mary Magdalene, who was a woman of very few means. But everyone giving as they're able to support. Rodney Stark, in his history of the early church, talks about how the beginning church, the early church, would have been a gathering of people who were highly committed because there would have been very few people who saw it as advantageous to join the church. There have been very few people who would have seen it as a way to take a step up on the social ladder because you were an outcast if you belonged to Jesus's early group of followers. In Mark Sayre's book, Reappearing Church, he talks about how the church today is often plagued with what he refers to as skimmers. These are people that want to take the benefits or they talk, take the kind of the, the, the skim, the cream off of the top of the church, but they contribute nothing to the life of the church. And, and here it's referred to as they are giving. And it's not because there's, there's, there's emphasis on finances or money or anything like that, but it's rather it's showing that these are people that they are all in. They are committed. And this is important because there is no real intimacy without commitment. There's no real intimacy without skin in the game, without being committed to another person. There are a lot of opportunities for you to engage with other people, for you to have a transaction with them, but there is no real intimacy, there is no real community without a commitment to them. These people were committed to Jesus. They didn't have it all figured out, and they were going to make a whole lot of mistakes, but they were committed. And so verse 3, we see that they're supporting the ministry financially. Verses 9 to 11, we see that after Jesus delivers a message, that they discuss it with him afterwards. They ask questions and have their questions answered. And verses 16 to 18, Jesus speaking to them says that those who have received, that they will have a greater responsibility. Verse 21, that's where Jesus calls them his family. But in then verses 22 to 25, and then again in verse 51, we see that the disciples, his closest followers, that they are witnesses to some miracles that no one else is witness to. Because Jesus' disciples who are with him on the boat, when he calms the storm, they get to see that. Jesus goes in, he raises the, the, the dead, he raises this little girl back to life who has passed away, and he only allows his three closest followers in with him. Those who were closest to him, they got to see more of the work that he was doing. This is just the beginning of something beautiful and powerful that Jesus is building. And as we read this, I hope that with me, your heart will long for Faith Church to look more and more like this beautiful community of ragtag disciples that Jesus is putting together. I hope that you will desire for Faith Church 
to become this community like the one that Jesus exemplifies here in Luke and Acts. Because I believe that our hearts are desperately hungry for it and that the hearts of those around us in our community are desperately hungry for it too. I don't know if you watched uh, the Super Bowl um, or if you watched the commercials from the Super Bowl, but I noticed something about the Super Bowl commercials. Many of the companies were trying to connect with this longing that we have for hope and meaning and community. There were several commercials that had a monologue telling some powerful story while cinematic serious music was playing over epic uh, cinematography, stories of different people whose lives have been changed, who have overcome adversity through the help of a community or some person reaching out to them. These companies are trying to connect with that. And one of the ones I thought was the most striking was a Jeep commercial. This Jeep commercial was two minutes long. And it's Bruce Springsteen riding around the middle of the country in a Jeep. And he goes to this place in the heartland. It's this chapel that is set up in the geographic center of the country. And he's talking about our country meeting in the middle. But I want, you just, I want to just read some of this monologue that Bruce Springsteen delivers as he's driving around in this Jeep. And I want you to hear all of the biblical language that is used that some marketing firm wrote to connect with customers for Jeep. All are more than welcome to come. Now, fear has never been the best of who we are, and as for freedom, it's not the property of just the fortunate few. It belongs to us all. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, it connects us, and we need that connection. Later, he says, we just have to remember that the very soil we stand on is common ground. We can make it to the mountaintop through the desert and we will cross this divide. I mean, this sounds so much like Moses and the Hebrew children. Our light has always found its way through the darkness. And there's hope on the road up ahead. Now, Springsteen said that he viewed this commercial as a prayer. And he put together brand new music to go along with this prayer that he was delivered. Now, if you missed seeing that commercial on Super Bowl Sunday there's a pretty good chance that you haven't seen it because Jeep had to pull the commercial from all of its spots and even took it off of its YouTube channel the following week, the week after the Super Bowl, because it came out that Springsteen had just been recently arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol. And the irony of Springsteen, who's driving around in this Jeep, offering up this prayer for our nation to then be arrested for driving around while under the influence of alcohol, it's just too much. Because what we see again and again is people will, will try to portray, there is this connection, here's something real, here's something that your heart is longing after, and then you get closer and you see that it's all just TV magic. It's all just Hollywood lighting and cinematography. It's not real. The disciples, these people who were closest to Jesus, these people who would see uh, more of Jesus' life than anyone else, what they saw the closer they got to Jesus was that it was real. 
These people, they would die for Jesus. They would die proclaiming the message of Jesus' life and his gospel. And you don't die for what you know to be a lie. Many people have died for a lie, but it's because they have believed the lie. These disciples knew up close the life and ministry of Jesus. They had seen that it was real. They got close to Jesus, and they didn't find it to be fake. They found it to be authentic and real. It was beautiful. Just over a week ago, a heartbreaking report came out about a Christian leader and celebrity. He was someone who looked so authentic and real in the image that was curated of him on television and on the radio and on social media. But apparently, the closer you got, the less authenticity you found. And the closer you got, the more hiding and secrets there were. That's not what the disciples experienced. The closer they got to Jesus, the more real and authentic they found him to be. So much so that they were willing to die for him. People are desperate for authenticity. People are desperate right now more than ever for what is true, what is real. More than ever before, people are disgusted with the projections and the smoke and mirrors. They long for what is real. And Luke chapter 8 shows us this community that's developing around what is real. This real community developing around what is real. And it also shows us how to get there. Because Jesus gives us a parable, an analogy, a lesson about what is real. And that's what we're going to read in Luke verses 4 to 18. So stick with me as we read through this story and then Jesus' discussion with the disciples and then his closing analogy to help them grab a hold of what he's talking about. Luke chapter 8 and verse 4 says, And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in a time of temptation or trial or hardship, 
fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand, that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore take heed how you hear, for whosoever has, to him more will be given. And whosoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. In this parable, the focus is on the types of soil. And there are four types of soil. But we can sum up what happens in three ways. There's the soil where there's no reception, no growth, and no fruit. It fell by the wayside and it was plucked up. Then there's soil, two types of soil, where there is reception and there is some growth, but there's still no fruit. And then finally, there's good soil, where there is reception and growth, and finally, fruit. And that good soil is where we want to be. We want to receive the word, grow in the word, and produce fruit. And we could break down those three categories as having faith, being found faithful, and producing fruit. Faith, faithfulness, then fruit. Faith, faithfulness, then fruit. Now, there are two examples of soil that have some growth but do not produce fruit. There's the type of soil that is stony, so there's no root. And there's the type of soil that has thorns that choke out what grows. There are those who receive the word, but they never put any roots down. They never get plugged in. They never have a sustainable practice in place to continue on in their walk with Jesus. They never tap into what's available to them. And when the difficulties come, when the hot sun blazes down, when the wind comes, they are swept away and no fruit is produced. But then there are others who do put down roots, but the thorns that grow up around them choke them out. And I want you to notice that there are three types of thorns that Jesus refers to. There's the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. And these three things are not the same. Because cares are very different from riches and pleasures. Cares could be referred to as worries. In fact, the message Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, translates that word as worrying about tomorrow. In this chapter, there's a moment where Jesus and the disciples, they're in a boat, they're traveling across the water, and a storm raises up. Jesus is asleep, and the disciples are panicked. And so they come and they wake Jesus up and they say to him, we are perishing. And Jesus gets up, 
He calms the wind and the waves. But then he looks at the disciples and he says, where is your faith? Jesus says, what are you worrying for? Um, I, I've decided in 2021 not to use Facebook and Twitter on my phone. I'm still getting onto those social media sites, but I have to do it from a computer. And the reason for that is I don't want to just mindlessly scroll on these sites um, when I'm not really thinking about it, when I'm standing in line or something along those lines. And honestly, when I do get on Facebook or Twitter on my computer to post something, to upload a video about the church, I'm kind of amazed at the amount of panic that there is. And, and listen, I know that figuratively there have never been more signs that the boat we're on is sinking. But I want to say to my Christian brothers and sisters, we're still in the boat with Jesus. Let us have faith. And I know that there's reason to be concerned. And there are many things happening in our world that we should be frustrated with. And we want God's righteousness and his justice to roll down. But we should also keep in mind that we are on the winning side. And we should not allow the worries and cares and frustrations of this world to put us in a panic. Brothers and sisters, I... If I look at your social media feed, are you characterized by peace or panic? We are still in the boat with Jesus, and our faith is in him. Let's not allow the cares of this world to threaten our faithfulness and fruitfulness. Now, as much as I'd like to talk along about the soils that did not produce, let me focus the remainder of my time on the soil that did produce fruit. In verse 15, Jesus said, But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with noble and good hearts, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now, the, the translation here in the New King James is noble and good. In the King James, it's honest and good. And the idea is good and good. Those The two words that are translated there are basically good and good hearts. And the reason that it's, it sounds so similar is because in our English language, we don't have two different words for good in appearance and good in character. But the idea here is it's not just good to look at. It's not just good on the surface. It's good in its substance as well. The idea here is it doesn't just have a good profile picture. It doesn't just look good. It hasn't just portrayed itself as good. It is really good. It's authentic. It looks good and it is good. It looks good because it is good. It's real. It's authentic. It's genuine. And what we have here in this parable is that the evidence of what is authentic and genuine comes out in time. Over time, what's real is revealed. And I want you to notice the references to time in verse 15. The ones that fell on good ground are those who, having the, heard the word with noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And the word keep it could mean hold fast, to hold it tightly. To bear it with patience, that could mean endurance. And Jesus is still explaining this point to his disciples when he shifts to another analogy. And this one's about candles. He says, no one lights a candle and places it under a bed, but rather places it on a candlestick so that all who come in the house might see it. And what Jesus is saying here 
I've always thought of this little analogy as talking about his message, that he's going to lift it up so that all can hear. But I see now that what Jesus is saying, he's talking about, he's talking about what he's been saying in this other parable. He's saying, I have not done these things with the intention of keeping them hidden. It will be revealed. I have not done these things and plan on keeping them hidden. It is going to be revealed. Time is going to tell. Um, my father has gotten me um, hooked on this YouTuber. It's a YouTube account. I've never really been much to watching things on YouTube other than sermons. But there's this farmer in Minnesota who uploads all the things that he's doing on his farm and, and how he runs his tractors and how he plants. And I was watching one of his videos and they had just planted and being in Minnesota, their season is very different from what we have here in southern Indiana. And so they have to work around the weather and they had planted and then a frost came. And he was going out into his field and looking at the leaves on these crops to see if the frost had damaged them. And he's looking at it, and being a farmer, he can look at it a whole lot better than I can. And there's a whole lot about looking at the leaf of this soybean plant that I wouldn't even begin to imagine or understand. But you know what he said? He said, it's looking pretty good, but time will tell. We will see. There's no, really way, there's no way really to know yet, but time will tell. All of these things that are hidden now will become visible. The seeds that went into the ground and the ground is stony. The seeds that went into the ground and the ground is thorny. The seeds that went into the ground and was good soil. They all look the same early on. But time will tell and it will be revealed. What's real will be revealed. Sharon Miller tells a story of, she was at a conference with some major Christian speakers and they're in a back room and they're talking and there's this one um, up and coming leader and he's, he's telling inappropriate stories and just making crude jokes. And years later, his ministry, which was big and, and had this major following and it imploded because of a lack of character on his part. And she said what was surprising was not that that happened, but rather all of the people who were surprised that it happened. Because she said they knew his character back then. And what she said next really captured me. It really hit me. She said, and character is destiny. Character is destiny. Our character today is our destiny tomorrow. If it's not real today, that will be revealed tomorrow. If there are no roots today, that will be revealed in harvest. If we are choked with the thorns of love of money and love of pleasure and worry and cares of this world, that will be revealed when the harvest comes. And I want you to see what Jesus says after the candlestick analogy what he says in verse 18. Therefore, take heed how you hear. In other words, be careful how you hear. For whoever has, to him will more be given. 
And whoever does not have, even what he seems, and underline the word seems, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. Even what he seems to have will be taken from him. What's real will be revealed. And for those who seem to have but it's not real, what they seem to have will be taken from them because they've never really had it. They only seemed to have it. What's real will be revealed. Character is destiny. Real hearts will be revealed. Good soil produces fruit. Be careful how you hear. Jesus says, oh, be careful how you listen because what's real will be revealed. And did you notice what Jesus did back in verse 8? Back in verse 8, as Jesus has been telling this story, the end of verse 8, it says, and when he had said these things, he cried. In other words, he yelled out. He shouted for emphasis. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying, be careful how you listen. Really listen. What Jesus wants is for you to really listen. What Jesus wants is for you to really hear, to really follow. Jesus wants you to be real. How do we get to this place of this powerful community, this movement of people who love and support and develop and encourage one. How do we have this family like the disciples had? It's by being real. It's by being real. Are we being real? That's going to be revealed. It's going to be revealed. Be real. Really listen, really hear, really follow, really be a disciple. You know what's beautiful about that? Is the people who made up Jesus' disciples, <laughs> they were messed up. They were broken but you can be messed up and broken and still be real. 